Hi, everyone. This is John Mandrola, and I'm here with the Sensible Medicine Podcast. And I'm again for the second week in a row. Happy to have my friend Andrew Foy from Penn State University in Herschel, Pennsylvania. And um, we're going to talk this week on two major topics. But before we get into these topics, I want to remind everybody before we even start that if you like this podcast, please give us a rating write us a brief review. These things are important to uh, spread the word and f help others find us. So, Andrew, welcome. Good to have you. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. Thanks for having me again. All right. The two topics today, one is going to be uh, coronary artery calcium. We promised last week that we would get into it. Uh, it's a big it's a big area that's happening a lot. Coronary artery calcium can be measured either on a chest CT scan or a specific coronary artery calcium scan. And Andrew and I have written about it together. And, and Andrew is really a strong thinker on this uh, topic. And the second topic is really cool. It's going to get to a paper that Andrew published in uh, Advanced Medical Education Practition Practitioner. It's an academic medical education journal. I'll link to it. The title of the paper is Student Perceptions of a New Course Using argumentation in medical education or argue to learn is the um is the uh, topic of the paper and andrew was some was first author and it sounds like his idea so we're going to get into the whole idea about argumentation in the second topic and i think you're really going to like it so first topic is um coronary calcification uh andrew just tell us what the deal is with this just an intro Sure. I mean, I guess for quite some time now, the way that in cardiovascular medicine, uh, or just let's just say primary prevention for public health purposes, I mean, we've used certain standard um, risk markers to sort of determine um, to determine an individual's future risk for having cardiovascular disease. And those, the variables that have been used for quite some time, include things like age, sex, um, the presence of diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, sometimes family history. And then of course, uh, cholesterol profile uh, is in there as well. Smoking. And, you know, based on those, those variables, um, you know, decisions are made in terms of, do we recommend that people be on cholesterol lowering drugs, particularly statins, but now there's more than statins. Um, should people be on cholesterol lowering drugs to reduce their risk of future cardiac events? Um, and, you know, as far as these, uh, these risk prediction equations go, um, they have reasonably good sensitivity and specificity, but of course, um, many people who wouldn't be targeted to be on primary prevention therapy like cholesterol lowering drugs um, are people that end up having heart attacks and have cardiovascular events. And so there's always interest from the research community in sort of uh, helping to refine those algorithms. And one of the most recent things um, that's really been I think a big deal in the field of cardiovascular medicine um, and cardiovascular prevention is using coronary calcium 
and the presence or absence of coronary calcium or the uh, magnitude of coronary calcium burden uh, to improve uh, risk prediction in patients uh, who don't already have cardiovascular disease. And uh, that's sort of the background there. And if we do coronary calcium on a large population of patients, you know, various studies show that there will be, you know, a handful of people, um, five, 10% of that population, who we would end up, you know, recommending statin therapy for, who we would not have recommended statin therapy for had we not done the calcium tests. There's going to be people, another percentage of people who end up having no calcium and where we may have advised them to consider taking a statin. We may want to sort of temper those recommendations because their risk is not as high as we would have thought it was going to be. Um, and then a lot of people, it doesn't really change what the recommendation would be one way or the other. So it's one more tool that we can use in some cases to help refine people's risk for cardiac events in the future and make decisions about taking, you know, really what it comes down to is taking a cholesterol lowering drug or not. So that's the academic argument, right? So that's really, we're talking with these scans and we're really talking about predicting the future events. And isn't it true that before there was coronary calcium scans, we would have these risk scores that we would calculate um, 10 year risk and uh, maybe Framingham score was early, but there's other scores. And basically you're, you're putting these clinical parameters like age, diabetes, cholesterol numbers into a calculator, and it's kicking out a 10 year risk. And the the idea, though, is that, I mean, a lot of people who have so-called high risk don't have events, and a lot of people who have low risk have events. And so they're really they're really imperfect scores. I mean, isn't, isn't that where you're getting at with the whole sensitivity and specificity thing? Yeah. And I mean, I would take that even further as to say that the traditional scores that we use that, that don't include coronary calcium... Um, are imperfect in the sense that their sensitivity is not as, you know, high as it could be, but they tend to have a bit better specificity than coronary calcium, meaning that there's less people um, that won't have events that end up getting sort of reclassified into a higher risk group. So what we find when we add coronary calcium, and this is called net reclassification index, um, and, you know, some people are familiar with that term, but what we find is that there is a small percentage of patients who get reclassified to a higher risk group and, and a small portion of those people will end up having future events, but it's actually, uh, about four times more people get reclassified to a higher risk category and they won't have events. And so it's, you know, you could consider it a wash in some ways, or even, 
makes matters worse. It, it's really just a matter of perspective. I, I mean, um, and so I think that that's really the argument for sort of broad scale, sort of using coronary calcium as sort of um, like a public health intervention, as opposed to, is it just something that if you have a patient that's very interested or whatnot, you know, you can sort of go through the decision-making with them as opposed to just recommend it offhand to essentially everybody. Now, the, so the, the first thing is the, the precision of predicting future events. And you've already kind of outlined that maybe in the best case scenario, doing these scans and having coronary calcium or not having coronary calcium may, may, may or may not uh, improve our risk prediction that is imperfect with or without these scans. But I mean, when you talk about these risk categories of taking a statin or not taking a statin, I, I kind of want to get your idea of this because we different people recommend statins for different levels of 10-year risk. I know some guidelines say if your 10-year risk is 7.5% or higher, then we'd recommend you take a statin. If you're some other uh, groups might say it has to be greater than 10%. But I mean, isn't it true that just statin drugs reduce the risk of a cardiac event by 25%, no matter what your 10-year risk is? And isn't that number of whether you should take a statin in the eye of the beholder? And why do we need professional organizations to tell us what level of 10-year risk we should uh, pull the trigger on recommending so, these medicines. So I think, and I don't want to go sort of rehash something that we talked about last week, but I think if your tenure, regardless of what your tenure risk is, the first thing you said was statins will lower your risk. And I would say that's not universally true. We talked about very high risk groups last week who statins have not actually been shown to reduce risk, but we're not really talking about those people when we're talking about the case of using coronary calcium. When we're talking about using coronary calcium, we're generally talking about in a primary prevention population of patients who, you know, their risk is not going to be as high as it was for patients with end-stage renal disease or, you know, advanced heart failure in some of those negative statin trials. So, Putting that aside, I think it is reasonable to say that in, you know, in all trials where cholesterol-lowering drugs, particularly statins, have been tested, um, it does seem like they reduce you know, relative risk in the ballpark of like 25 to 50 percent. Um, and what that comes out to and like a number needed to treat depends on the absolute risk of the population. But even in, even in patients who we used to sort of think were really low-risk people, Statins have been shown to reduce the risk of future cardiac events. Now, you know, we could get into the fact that, well, we they also had to have elevated high sensitivity CRP to get into that particular clinical trial. But I think it is reasonable to make an assumption that statins, you know, uniformly lower risk by about 25 to 50% for major adverse cardiac events in primary prevention populations. Um, now, you know, what proponents of CAC testing would say is, well, if your risk is so low 
I mean, you're, you're, the number needed to treat with a statin would be like close to infinity. And that's a, a reasonable argument. There's this utility of taking the pill. But I mean, from a more practical standpoint, you know, if we're talking about making a decision to like take a statin because your risk is, let's say, 12% versus 8%, in all reality, that's not a meaningful difference to most people, you know, 12% versus even 5% or 6%. I mean, I don't think those are meaningful differences that most people care about. I think what people, it's much simpler. It's do you, would, do you want to do everything possible to reduce your risk as much as possible, even if it means taking a drug that's most likely not going to benefit you? Because that's the reality, even if you're in one of these high risk groups, is that, you know, you're not going to be, you're not going to benefit from taking the drug and you're not going to be harmed. So do you want to do that? And there's people that want to do that. But I, the reality for me is that I think there's more people that don't. I mean, I think the fact that, you know, it's something like 30 to 50% of people who've had heart attacks don't, aren't even taking their statin drugs within six to 12 months following an event. And I mean, these are the people that stand the most to benefit it's, I just don't think it's that meaningful to that many people. When it is meaningful to somebody, I engage them in the in a discussion, and you know, I, I like talking about these things. And I, you know, I'm not invested in the decision that they make one way or the other. I just want to provide them the best information. But I think when we talk about it from like a broad public health standpoint, I don't. I mean, I don't think that the CAC enthusiasts really appreciate like the decision making that goes on for for you know for just average ordinary patients that you know 5% ain't that big of a deal i mean that's not going to sway them to take a statin one way or the other and that's sort of what this whole argument comes down to for me yeah so the i agree because if I mean, it just seems to me like if you were calculating your risk of having a bad event and it was 8% versus 12%, it would hardly seem like that would, would sway you anyway. It would just be like, if that was really important to you to, to avoid that kind of event, then you, you would take the drug. And if, 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 if you were like kind of on the fence about it at 8%, you're going to be on the fence about it at 12% and maybe even 15%. It just seems like that amount of that amount of increasing precision, even if it was true, it doesn't seem worth it to me. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it doesn't seem worth it to me either. Now, let me ask you one of the things that speaking of reclassification of people's risk, Let's say someone, 50-year-old person, calculates their uh, risk and it comes out to 7 or 8%. So they're toggling that line where everybody would agree that they'd probably benefit enough to take a pill every day in the form of a statin. But then their CAC score comes out to be zero. So the so-called CAC zero. And I have a problem with it, but I'm going to let you opine on it. And what do you, the CAC zero people would say, you should do this medical test because if it's zero, we have observational studies showing that event rates are so low that you probably don't need to take a statin, even though you're pulled, even though your your calculated ten year risk from clinical factors is enough to take it. What what do you think of that? 
Yeah, you know, I guess um, I don't I don't really feel comfortable saying that with a lot of certainty. But I but I guess what I would say is that if you're a person who was in that risk range of, let's say, 5, 10, 15 percent, and you specifically did CAC because you don't want to take a statin, you know, I certainly think your risk if your CAC comes out to zero is less than the pooled cohort equa equation would predict. And so, you know, if it makes you feel better about not doing it and you don't want to do it, great. I mean, I don't feel that strongly whether you do it at 10% or 0%, to be quite honest. I, I mean, my general opinion on, on statin drugs and most cholesterol-lowering drugs is that they're safe, they're effective, um, and... You know, I mean, I don't want to be like cavalier about it, but there's a lot of people that take vitamins and supplements and all kind of stuff that we don't have evidence of benefit for. I mean, statins are drugs that we have evidence of benefit for. I mean, so if you're willing to take a multivitamin, I mean, I don't and, and I, I don't do this, by the way. I mean, I don't take a statin like a multivitamin, but I'm just, you know, maybe when I'm 50 or 55 or 60, I just will. I don't know. You know, I'll probably forget to take it half the time, but then I'll be like everybody else. Well, the, the tell me what you think of my reasoning on this CAG zero. My reasoning is that we have, you know, we have all of these randomized controlled trials, meta-analysis of RCTs with statins that show clearly there's a reduction of cardiac events, excluding the heart failure and CKD in the end-stage renal patients. And the CAG zero proponents are proposing that uh, we can use observational data to um, sort of trump the RCT data. And I I just have a problem with that because, I mean, I, I, I CAC zero um, in your 70s might be different than CAC zero at age 40. And I just think it's presumptuous to uh, use observational data to, um, you know, sort of go ahead of all this RCT data. What do you think of that? Yeah, no, I I mean, I agree. All right. Now, well, there is a study we want to talk about with Keck and got me going on this, but I also, so the first, I guess, point of contention that we have with this whole idea is that we're not sure how much in the best case scenario that it changes your, your um, precision of future events and, 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 how much it would change a, a average person's uh, decision analysis. But there are other issues with screening people. And I think one of the biggest problems with CAC, and, and I see it, you, you, you've told me that you don't, but what happens in our world is that once someone knows they have a hunk of calcium in their LAD, they can't unsee it. And people still have um, this notion that it's better to find things before they cause events than after. And what this leads to in the real world, in my world, is downstream testing. So someone gets a coronary calcium score, it comes back at two or 300. There's a LAD calcification. They, they say, and their doctors say, well, crap, we should do a stress test to see if there's a positive uh, stress. And if there is, then the next step is coronary uh, angiography. And if there's a 80% mid LAD, they get a stent and 
there's absolutely no evidence that that kind of uh, approach reduces the risk of future events, which is counterintuitive. And we don't, I don't think we have a lot of strong data showing that downstream testing is so prevalent, but I have what I see and I get emails and I think it's just a huge problem. And the CAC proponents, to their credit, they don't, they, they say that this is not what coronary calcium is for. Coronary calcium scans are to change decision-making on primary prevention or uh, primary prevention therapies. It's not to evaluate uh, for angiography and revascularization, but that message hasn't been heard. And pragmatically, this is how it works in the real world. Are you asking me? Yeah. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? So, I mean, yeah, I, I've seen, you know, I've experienced several patients who've, who've gotten CAC. They've had very high scores and then they've sort of um, gone through the gauntlet of testing and, and wound up with either revascularization uh, or even bypass in one, in one case. I just, I don't see it that much. I mean, I think that it is uh, a potential problem. I think that, you know, to be quite honest, I think the work of people like you and I and people that think like us have have has been helpful in terms of sort of steering this um, issue, at least in the direction of this is really just a matter of deciding to take a statin or not and not a matter of, you know, going on for further tests and, and revascularization. We still see it. I mean, you're absolutely right. Maybe where I am, you know, I practice in Hershey, Pennsylvania area. And, I, and I've told you this before. I do think we have a generally more conservative culture um, when it comes to, to intervention and, and just testing in general. And that could maybe be some of the reason I'm not seeing it lead to, you know, um, big downstream testing. And, and, you know, also I'm somebody in my department who, you know, probably because of what I've, you know, written about, what I'm vocal about. I mean, that influences other people in the department too, right? And I mean, so I think that if you have some people who are sort of strong proponents for like, you know, I guess thinking about this sensibly, then then it helps to sort of avoid some of the, some of the maybe unnecessary downstream care that could occur. And I don't, you know, I don't find too many of my partners, I don't think any of my partners, uh, and it's a big group. I can't think of one person who, if they were sent somebody in the outpatient office uh, because their primary care physician did a calcium test and their calcium test came back very high. I, I don't think there's one person I work with who would send that person for further testing if they were asymptomatic. And, you know, I mean, that's a group of 40 cardiologists. Well, that's a credit to you because that is 100% opposite to what happens in my world. And here, uh, coronary calcium scans are promoted in the newspapers. There's a, a person who writes editorials in the Louisville Courier Journal uh, uh, touting the benefits of this. And this leads to, uh, this really leads to an effect and I, I would say that a lot of the coronary calcium scores that we see are uh, not ordered by us particularly, but 
ordered by referring physicians and then patients get this huge score and they they are told they have coronary disease and boom that is that is uh, it, it's been a major issue so i maybe i mean it's a credit to you and and maybe to your work and and your influence in that community but it is it is not the experience in my uh zip code and i also get emails talking about a lot of downstream testing related to this and it makes perfect sense right because I would never get a coronary calcium scan because I absolutely don't want to know if I have calcium in my LAD because it would just get in my head and I would be worried about it. And I would think part of my brain, my reptile brain would think we need to do something about that. And it might be more than just taking a pill. And that's a, that's a real problem. Uh, I think. And that's interesting that you say that uh, just, uh, you know, because I think for myself, um, you know, and I'm, I'm a few years younger than you, but like, I don't think it would make any difference to me. I mean, I feel like I, I'm, I'm going to have a reasonable risk of having atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease events in my life. Um, even though I feel like I'm a, I'm a healthy person and I do, you know, I mean, I, I'm not a health nut or a health zealot, but like, I, you know, I try to, to live fairly decently. And um, I don't know, I mean, I feel like I'm going to have a risk, the risk is going to increase as I get older, and something could happen. And if something happens, hopefully, <laughs> you know, I mean, most people do pretty well, you know, that have, car, you know, heart attacks in this day and age. And, um, you know, hopefully I'm not somewhere where I dropped dead, I guess. It, it's existential. It's existential because um, I had a I had a cervical spine film and they're reading all my uh, uh, old age disc disease. And uh, they said, oh, by the way, you have a plaque in your carotid artery. And I'm like, WTF? Why? I It was like an existential thing to have a. Uh, calcification of a carotid artery so i don't know it's it, you, you speak to me speak to me when you turn my age and 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 see you'll probably feel the same i i wouldn't i wouldn't go through all of that it would just be part of my reptilian brain would think of that and i understand how patients think of that and to be honest with you it takes a lot of effort to educate patients about this and because there's so much there's so much uh, worry and anxiety coming in. I mean, I have patients who have terrible, terrible arrhythmias. They're but, but, but see, I, I think this is some of the argument that sort of leads to, to like this notion that unnecessary medical care is driven by patients fear and anxiety and i and i think that there is some of that i mean that we certainly you know we we have you know we know patients who are more anxious and fearful of things than others but i don't think that's average i just don't think that's average i don't think that the average person is walking around worried sick that they're you know that that something bad's going to happen to them and i i actually think that for people that are sort of worried sick that something bad's going to happen to them. I mean, one, it's not psychologically healthy and it almost becomes like 
a bit of a you know it's I don't think that's psychologically healthy to be honest. So what is the what is, what is the driver of all this unnecessary care, low value care? Well, I mean, we could have a whole show on that. <laughs> I think part of it is that that I mean this that's the way that uh I think a lot of it is um it's supply induced. I mean, we've talked about this before. I mean, we we plant the seed, you know, the, you know, that people need things, and then they they do it, you know, or or a lot of things that people get done to them, they they just sort of agree to. It's not necessarily that they want it. I mean, one of the easiest things that I find when I do these coronary calcium conversations with people, most people just want to come into the office and hear that that it's not that big of a deal. You know, like most of them are already on a statin. Exactly. You know, they're not. We just say, you know, hey, why don't you consider, you know, taking this drug? We talk about the benefits and risks. It's, it's not an existential thing for most people. They, the existential thing is like, am I going to die? No, you're not going to die. From You know, we're all going to die. I mean, you know, but this is not, not right now. And, you know, the most that you can do for it, if you want to do everything possible, is to is to take a cholesterol lowering term. I mean, and that's really it. I, I don't I believe in I don't believe that revascularizing that asymptomatic lesion confers any benefit. And I and I think that the science supports that. So why would that make why why should that make us that much more worried? You know, it's that's sort right. of my perspective on it. I was gonna talk about that. I was gonna talk about that weak study, but let's let's just close this part of the conversation with a, a, a question of if I mean in your practice do you do you order coronary calcium scans on patients to help uh, sort out risk or do you not uh, I have never I have so, never ordered one in my life so I've ordered them I, I can order two that I can remember in the in the last couple years both of them were on people with very high cholesterol i suspected a component of familial hypercholesterolemia and they had statin intolerance and the reason that we did that was because if it was abnormal it would have helped them get on to like a pcsk9 inhibitor or something like that so i've never actually done it for a person that's just come in who had you know, who wanted to get the calcium for risk refinement. You know, now look, I'm not in a, I'm not in a specialty lipid lab or a, a, a prevention clinic or something like that. I'm just a good old general cardiologist. So maybe when people decide to make special trip to the John Hopkins primary prevention clinic, you know, it could be, it, it, you know, it could be a selected audience, but I don't get those people. So I, I never really find a reason to do it. All right. That's great. That's great. Let's talk about let's talk about your idea and your paper and your project on uh, a argument argue to learn a a two L or ATL. Um, the first line of this paper and it's open access and of course I'll link to it is this sentence quote critical thinking and the ability to engage with others of differing views in a civil manner is essential to the practice of medicine. I mean, that's some, that's a great lead. And that is, 
you know, such an important sentence. And so tell me about this argue to learn uh, project and, and just start. Yeah. Just, just tell us about this. Cause I've never heard of this. And uh, I think our listeners will really be excited. Sure. So, I mean, as far as I, I know, I mean, this is something probably unique uh, to Penn State College of Medicine. Um, so basically this, this whole thing started probably four, four or five years ago. Um, actually one of, uh, one of the physicians who's a, a neurologist, uh, a Parkinson's disease researcher, was interested in getting a group of sort of research and educators together to talk about how do we how do we do something um, like electively to get medical students interested in pursuing careers in research, and 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 specifically how do we get them to want to become physician scientists? And I don't consider myself a physician scientist. Maybe at one point in my career I was going to be on track for that, but but for the audience that basically means. Uh, a doctor who makes some substantial portion of their salary from, from research grants, typically from NIH or other external funders. Um, and this particular physician, Dr. Shumei Huang, had, has had a wildly successful career in doing that. And some of the other, some of the other people involved have also had very successful careers. I just, I've known Shumei uh, for like, for, for quite a while, she seems to still think of me this way. I don't really know why. So she brings me into to some of these things and it's always enjoyable for me. So anyway, um, we, we started brainstorming this with this other group of, of people. And we came up with this idea of, of just sort of doing these stage debates um, on topics that were controversial, interesting, and that could lead people to sort of want to, you know, have a career of further inquiry. And so we did a couple of these electively and it, you know, the group uh, really liked it. And, and I sort of started pushing for the notion that, you know, whether, whether this is gonna increase the number of medical students that wanna pursue physician, being a physician scientist or not, I really think that everybody who's training to be a doctor should be exposed to to this because the bottom line is you know a lot of medical education um, is is a lot of rote memorization um, and a lot of doctors tend to be very black and white thinkers when they when they graduate and you know they get into practice but the reality is most of what we do is shades of gray and you know these sorts of discussions and debates, I think are really healthy. And then it sort of also coincided with the COVID pandemic where there was sort of a big suppression of, of scientific debate and, um, you know, just, just a stifling of, of dissent. And now, you know, we know of the tactics that were used to sort of, um, to make that suppression of, of speech and dissent happen. And I think we can at least say that um, it seems like those dissenting views should have, should have had a seat at the table because, you know, they're, um, 
predictions for, or, you know, their recipes for policy or whatnot, or at least as reasonable as the other side. And I, you know, now that the dust has sort of settled, I think, you know, people can start to talk about some of that stuff a little more. But so it was sort of in that cauldron where this all all came up. And and so what, once we took it from these elective sessions, we actually talked to some course directors and they were enthusiastic about trying it as part of like the formal learning blocks. And so the two sessions that, that we actually described in this paper, and this was sort of, you know, like a methods paper, but it also had results. So we did a, a session on, you know, what should be the first line drug for postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. Everybody's familiar with bisphosphonates. Now there's newer drugs. Um, you know, denosumab is a, um, is a monoclonal antibody that's, uh, basically increases bone mineral density more so than bisphosphonates, but it has no evidence that it reduces uh, fracture events uh, more. And so it really lends itself well to the whole issue of, you know, how important are surrogate endpoints and what should physicians base decisions on when they're sort of like making recommendations for, for patients? Should you just go with like a new designer drug because it has evidence that it improves a surrogate endpoint, or should you actually emphasize the importance of clinical trials? And one of the interesting things about denosumab versus bisphosphonates is that even though there's never been a head-to-head -head trial where they've studied as a primary endpoint uh, fractures, there has been about eight to 10 uh, smaller trials where they actually studied changes in bone mineral density and collected data on fractures and meta-analysis have been done. I've actually uh, been involved with publishing one of those within the last several years. And it shows that there actually is no difference in, um, in fracture rates, even though there's a slight increase in bone mineral density. And then when, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, regression analysis of how much change in bone mineral density do you need to actually reduce a fracture, you really don't get anywhere close to that if you're looking at like bisphosphonates versus denosumab than you do if you're looking at either of them versus a placebo. So it gets sort of complex, but then it all comes back to the fact that bisphosphonates don't cost much at all. And denosumab costs, you know, I think it's, I don't want to speak out of turn, but it's thousands of dollars a year. It gets administered at a specialty clinic. Patients, you know, so it's it's a big issue of like the designer drug versus the old standard and what should be, you know, what should you think about as a physician when you're sort of making that decision for patients? And interestingly, the students go through the stage debate. You know, I take one side, another person takes, takes the other side. Um, and then you know, we debate back and forth for 15 minutes. The idea is to sort of model like what an excellent, you know, debate should be like. And then they go off into small groups and they have moderated sort of debates amongst themselves to try to resolve the issue. And then the session all wraps up with like the different teams having a spokesperson and sort of saying, you know, what were some of the things that they talked about? What were like things that, that really influenced their decision-making. 
Um, and then we sort of do like a pre and a post uh, survey to see like, you know, which side sort of wins. And, uh, you know, believe it or not, um, normally the, these things are pretty even um, and a lot of interesting points get raised um, on both sides. So that was one debate. And then the other debate, which um, was about should the COVID vaccine be mandated or not uh, at the time, this was, so we did, uh, the session was was during like the immunology learning block when they were learning about vaccines and, and immune response. So, uh, and, and also at this time, there was a, actually a lot of hostility toward people that didn't want to get vaccinated. And so um, it was actually our department chair of, of ethics that did the, uh, sort of like the anti-mandate um, side, you could say. And then our head of pharmacology, our department chair of pharmacology did the pro-vaccine um, should be mandated to reach herd immunity and essentially reduce, you know, population level morbidity and mortality as much as possible. And then Dr. Hausman, our, our chair of, of ethics, talked about like the historical movement toward vaccine hesitancy. And, you know, I think it really made an issue that a lot of people were looking at as black and white, which is, well, the only people in the, this country that don't want the COVID vaccine are like dumb rednecks who voted for Trump, you know, like, and it's like, not really, you know, like, and Dr. Hausman did a great job running through like the history of like vaccine hesitancy and mandates and why they can potentially be like counterproductive and, you know, why you should, you know, res you know, why you should respect people's autonomy on this issue. And there was a ton of movement on that, where I think at the beginning, it was sort of like something like 90% plus wanted the, the vaccine mandated. And in the post survey, it ended up being like 60%. So there was like a huge swing. And, and the students enjoyed that so much that several of the small groups actually did a continual, uh, like added an extra Zoom session to continue kind of talking and chatting among among themselves after this like hour and a half long session wrapped up. So, so it was good. So anyway, do you want me to stop now? Yeah. So um, the, how, how much, how much time was between the osteoporosis, very medical uh, facts, and then the policy debates? About six months. And so you were debating. It's interesting. Uh, the The paper that I'll link to in the on the Substack has the the pro and the con, you know, major points, and and it also has really nice narrative uh, descriptions of what students said and and. Uh, you know, sort of a qualitative, qualitative results. And, but what's so interesting to me, Andrew, is that you use the same format to debate a policy issue as complicated as vaccine mandates that gets into law and ethics and, 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 and politics, as you did a medical topic that gets into surrogate endpoints and value and, um, uh, and, 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 you know, basically evidence and value judgments. And so it's, it's just striking to me that you can use the same format for 
a, a, a such a contentious policy debate as a you know kind of I don't know nuts and bolts medical issue. Yeah, well, I don't. I, yeah, I guess. I mean, what? To me, it doesn't. I mean, no, no. Whether it's a policy issue or a medical issue, I mean, if you if you can just acknowledge that both that that there's more than one position and more than one position may have merit and you just have a respectful, you know, debate around the merits of the two sides. And then, um, I don't know. I mean, I think that that's, you know, I mean, it, society in general would be nice if we could just sort of agree to have discussions about things that, that we disagree on and see that there's, there's value and merit in both sides would be helpful but but i mean i don't want to i don't want to make this like too philosophical in the sense of like we want this to be grounded in in medicine and i i don't think this is like something like we're changing the world kind of thing but i think it's important for doctors at least um to do this i mean one of the, the reasons that we put in the introduction is you know we think that being able to think critically about these things and potentially make doctors sort of more resistant to get caught up in advertising hype. And now look, I mean, we didn't, you know, we didn't test that hypothesis specifically. We would love to try to test some of these things more um, formally going forward. But, um, you know, I know that that's something important to you and you've spent a lot of time writing about and talking about in your career, but, you know, I mean, how do you, how do you get, physicians to like want to read the actual like methods of a paper so that when they see an ad from a pharmaceutical company or they see you know or they hear a key opinion leader say that we should all be doing this that and the other that you know we don't just sort of just blindly follow and, and there's a lot of stuff in medicine there's a lot of stuff to learn it's like drinking from a fire hose some things you just gotta you know you just gotta take in pass the tests and let it go. But for the things that you really do, you know, there's not going to be that many things, no matter what kind of physician you are. Maybe I would say generalist is, they're the ones that have to, I think, deal with the most array of stuff. But once you start to get into specialization and whatnot, I mean, there's not that many different problems that I, as a, a general cardiologist, deal with every day. I should be you know, and, you know, I, I should have an expert level, uh, in my opinion, like content knowledge of all those problems, even if like, you know, I'm not going to be a person that puts in the device, or I'm not going to be the person that puts in a stent, you know, or does an ablation, I should have, you know, I still need to be an expert on, you know, the, on the efficacy of those, of those things, like the, the and I don't think we can like sort of just let that responsibility be taken away by others. And then we just sort of do what, do what we're told. And the, so that, that is sort of like the idea that we're hoping to, to catch on with, with this. The listeners of the podcast won't have the value of the video, but I'll just try and describe the video. When I asked Andrew about, you know, how it was interesting that he used the debate format with pros and cons for 
a medical topic versus a policy topic, his look on his face was like, that's such a dumb question. Of course, we use the same principles of debate. And I, I just, I, I just, I just love that. Now, the first sentence that I read, that was of the abstract, but the first sentence of the introduction, and I think this is really relevant to medical education, you you all write, following the Flexner Report of 1910, preclinical medical education in the U.S. mainly followed a transmission model of learning that focused heavily on reductionism. And okay, reductionism is kind of a big term, but I think I know what that means, but I let me let me just say what I think it means. I think it means that we were just basically learned facts. We taught facts, regurgitate facts, but we weren't really taught critical thinking and embracing the uncertainty of every day, like every clinic visit almost has uncertainty. Is that about right? Um, no, I like what you said, but that's not what was meant there. Um, so I think biomedical reductionism more just refers to the notion that uh, every medical problem can be broken down into like its constituent pathophysiological components. And so atherosclerosis is about um, cholesterol, for example. And if you lower cholesterol, you reduce atherosclerotic events, but it's probably oversimplified because, you know, human disease, especially adult human disease is very complex. It's very hard to replicate in a lab. And it's, uh, there's, there's so many more components to it than like, you know, and this is what it's like when we talk about treatment effect heterogeneity and those sort of things, but it's complicated and it's not just so simple as like, you know, doing one thing or, or two things. And that's all you need to, that's all you need to know. In other words, if you, if atherosclerosis comes from elevated cholesterol, if you lower cholesterol with any drug, it'll necessarily be a good thing. Right. You don't, need, you don't need to worry about outcome data and you don't need to worry about like that kind of stuff because you're treated the, you treated the component part of the disease. So you must have made a big impact. So the monoclonal, the monoclonal antibody that reduces that, that improves mineral or bone mineral density more is going to be more effective because it moves a surrogate and that's the reductionism, but the real debate is on whether it improves the ultimate clinical outcomes, such as fractures. And then, and yeah, so does it improve fractures? And then also the, you bring the value component into it as well. Yeah. And, and um, uh, I really appreciate down in the first paragraph, the absence of argumentation, i.e., the productive exchange of opposing views aimed at improved understanding of a given issue in medical education may leave doctors susceptible to medical marketing and incapable of resolving industry claims and adapting to changing paradigms. I mean, I, that just makes me tingle with delight because, of course, we're so easily bamboozled, not just by industry claims. Yes, that's an important area of being bamboozled, but also of just the, what I call therapeutic fashion of the day. We do things because that's what's done without any critical thinking. Yeah, yeah, of course. All right, so you come up with this argue to learn and you present some results in the paper 
And it sounds like, I mean, I guess the gist of it is that the medical students loved it. Well, I mean, I don't, it, you know, the qualitative comments, there was a lot of positive comments, but you know, that's a selected sample. Not everybody commented. Um, but when we compare, you know, the quantitative, so for every, for every course, um, in the College of Medicine at Penn State, there's a, for each block, there is a random group of, of 50 students who are man, essentially mandated to fill out these surveys for every single course in that learning block. And so for every course in the learning block, they fill out these questions. We took the ones from Argue to Learn and basically just compared them uh, on average um, to the scores for all of the other courses, which ended up being like 30 other courses in the, in the one for the denosumab versus bisphosphonates. And it was about that same number in the one uh, for the mandates. And, you know, what we found was that when it came to the quantitative survey, there was the argued to learn courses were slightly higher, but not statistically significantly higher. But we actually thought that was very positive because one of the things that we were concerned about, and, you know, anybody who does clinician education, I'm sure will tell you that this is always a big concern, which is, and it's, and it's gotten, and it's sort of, I think maybe even getting worse over time. Some people would say is that the students are, are sort of, they want to be so efficient as far as like learning what they need to learn for, for board purposes that they're really impatient sometimes. I mean, these are very generalized right. that I'm making, but there's some impatience to doing things that maybe might not be perceived as directly beneficial for like standardized testing. And so, you know, the, you know, these courses are take up an hour and a half of time. Um, and, you know, we were concerned that there was going to be some students. This is why when we went from an elective session to mandated courses, the concern was there was going to be students that said, this is a total waste of my time and just trash the courses. And we actually didn't get any of that. Now, maybe that some of the students that decided not to comment Maybe that's what they thought, but, you know, if that was the case and it was a lot, you know, I think our argue to learn sessions would have scored lower, you know, than average and they did it. So, you know, we found that as, you know, you know, we were happy with that. And what's your next uh, step? Is it that this is such an unalloyed good that you're just going to keep doing it or is there a plan for more, you know, systematic evaluation? I mean, we, I think it's both. Um, I think we would like to evaluate it more, but it's, you know, the real challenge for us is that the course directors are saying that they, they've lost time in their courses with, uh, you know, I don't know if it was just with, with COVID and changes that were made at that point, but, you know, and for Penn State, we actually condensed the first and the second year of medical, medical school into 18 months, which I think a lot of schools have done. So the course directors are saying that 
they have sort of less time than they ever had before. And it's hard, you know, it's hard finding time for these sessions and figuring out, you know, what they want the learning objectives of the sessions to be. So we have these argue to learn courses, like four of them right now established. You'll love this, this one. We've done it twice now has been a uh, screening for breast cancer. Um, and, you know, it, because it, it could be such a contentious topic, I actually take the pro position and Shumei takes the uh, con position. And she, you know, as being a neurologist in Parkinson's disease, she never even really thought about it before we started doing these. And, you know, she she gets all excited about it. Um, so, you know, we're, right now we're in the process of trying to get them into more courses and then figure out, you know, even if we get them into more courses, can we evaluate to actually try to say something about improving critical thinking? That's hard to do. Um, probably requires some testing with some some sort of like open-ended questions and then, you know, evaluating open-ended responses. And there's ways of, of sort of grading arguments um, based on like the number of claims and counterclaims and things like that that they make to tell you like how how rich uh, they are. Um, but it, it's a to it would be a total sea change in terms of like how, you know, how the courses are are run and how they even like, you know, if we wanted to test this, you know, how would we do it? Would we, would, you know, we make half the class. So it, it gets hard when it comes to, to like systematically researching it well versus just doing it out of the fact that we believe it's really beneficial. <laughs> that, and that's, you know, that's, isn't the challenge of testing any research. <laughs> yeah. But um, why, why does it have to be preclinical? Why couldn't it, why couldn't it be during the clinical years and why couldn't it be part of, why couldn't it be part of a project of an internal medicine, you know, finishing your internal medicine rotation or general surgery rotation or whatever, OBGYN, you, you, you're you you're going to give an argument. You could even make it a ten minute uh, pro con debate. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't. Yeah. I think there's there's a lot of ways that that things could go um, forward. Um, it's just trying to uh, trying to compare it in some sort of of rigorous way to to like the people that get this exposure. And people, how do we choose who gets the exposure and who doesn't get the exposure? And then how do we how yeah. do we sort of come to what's the like final test or evaluation of of knowledge and critical thinking? And and that's you know, I mean, I can I can figure out some easy ways to do it, but they're not feasible within the context of the education system right now. And so that's the challenge. I can just tell you anecdotally, and you know this because you've done the same thing, but I've given many, many debates. Actually, I've lost many, many debates. Uh, but in the process of doing a debate, it's tremendously, you feel after you finish, you feel like you really have a command of a subject once you've had to give a debate in front of a couple hundred people at a national meeting. Well, I mean, and I, I think that that's sort of, that's the gist of why. So this this notion of argumentation is being pushed 
in education in general. And it's actually, you know, I think I would say that medicine might be like the last place to actually embrace it where we probably need it the most, but we've not embraced it at all. It has been embraced at other levels because of that very reason. I mean, there's a there's a lot of good scholarship aimed at, at sort of teasing out what you just said, which is when you do a debate and you really engage in a debate and you engage on like grounds of, of like honesty and decency and you are trying to accept and hear what other people are saying and still try to figure out, you know, these claims, these counterclaims, and how to sort of sort through the merits of those. Yeah, you have a much richer like learning context than people that just, you know, learn a fact, for example, or a set of facts. It's it's you know it's it's totally different. Um, and and I think that in you know in medicine, maybe it's just there's so much to learn that. Um, we're just not taking the, the time, I guess, to, uh, you know, we don't have the time to try to do this, but it's, it, it's incredibly important, you know, because as we go forward as physicians, you know, and our, and things change, our paradigms change, our treatments change, you know, we need to be able to like, we need to be able to really weigh these things, understand them and, and decide, you know, on the merits you know, whether we want to accept them or not, uh, as opposed to just, you know, do whatever the guidelines happen to tell us. Yeah, I agree. And I, I guess I would close just by saying that to me, maybe it's naive, but the advantage of today's medical practice is unlike in the past when I started, I mean, in the past, we, we didn't have Google, we didn't have smartphones, we didn't have this availability of information where now if I don't know something, I mean, I can step out of the room and look it up in three seconds. I can sometimes look it up in front of the patient and, you know, we can learn these facts. That's the easy part. The, the hard part to me is dealing with the pros, cons, value judgments, and, and, you know, matching that up with patient values. And to me, being able to argue, to learn, I mean, this is more important, I think, than learning facts i think you need both because you you know you, you have to have facts or you know i mean you have to have data points um you need both and i think it's it's actually a way of maybe helping people learn facts even better right because you know you have to engage with with all of the facts with all of the data with all of the different claims being made and yeah, you know, I know for me, for my sort of learning style, that's a that is a much better way for me to learn than just trying to read something and memorize. I've never been good at that in my in my whole life. I mean, I'm I'm not a good memorizer. So unless I'm engaged in a topic, you know, to me, me memorizing stuff is just like wasting space in my brain. I mean, it's sort of worthless almost. And I don't do it well because I'm not engaged. But, but then that gets into a debate about learning styles and are there learning styles that are more predisposed to going into medicine versus other fields? It's all very interesting. Yeah, but to me, that, that I, wouldn't get, I wouldn't get bogged down in that. If you're going into medicine, you're dealing with uncertainty, you're going to have to make arguments with patients, not arguments, but persuasion 
every day and you're going to have to be somewhat resistant to being bamboozled and uh, learning learning facts and regurgitating them on a multiple choice test is not the way um, making arguments and being exposed to arguments and civil debate. To me, this is this is far more important than, you know, getting physiology lectures. I, I kind of think so. All right. <laughs> awesome. Student perceptions of a new course, argumentation and medical education. Uh, Andrew is first author. I'll link to it. And we've gone on for a little more than an hour. And as always, it's just awesome. Remember, if you if you like this podcast, please give us a rating, subscribe, uh, write us a brief review. Tell us what you think. You can make comments on the Substack and uh, whatever podcast app you can. Feel free to give us a comment. Andrew, thank you so much for this great hour. Yeah, thanks. All right.